Welcome to Twirl the Week in Health Law, the low actuarial value podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 27th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and future Fox News commentator, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder that if you like the show, you can become a patron. Just go to twill.com and click on our patron page link and stop feeling guilty. This week on Twill, we have two wonderful guests. First, a big welcome back, just 88 shows after her last appearance on the pod, to Leslie Francis, the Alfred C. Emery Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Utah, where she also holds adjunct appointments in Family and Preventative Medicine in the Division of Public Health, Internal Medicine in the Division of Medical Ethics, and in Political Science. She is the Director of the University of Utah Center for Law and Biomedical Sciences, and she's had a distinguished career in both the academy and public service. She's an incredibly prolific scholar and has a defined important domains, including that of health privacy. We also welcome John Francis, a research professor in the political science department, also at the University of Utah. He teaches and writes in the areas of political science, comparative politics and regulatory policy, ethics and data policy. His list of publications is also long and impressive. So I think this is our first pod power couple. Welcome back, Leslie, and welcome, John. Thank you. Between you, uh, you have a new book, uh, Privacy, What everyone needs to know and that's being published uh, i think is it next month by oxford university press i think it's published in the next two weeks even better so uh, uh, rush to amazon dear listener and uh, order your copy now uh, so why don't we start our conversation by talking a little bit about the book privacy what everyone needs to know why did you write it why did you write it together and who do you want to read it So why did I start out by saying, why did we write it? We wrote it because we think privacy is enormously important, very complex, and something that lots of people are interested in, but maybe don't know quite as much as they might like to. Why did we write it together, John? I think we wrote it together because a lot of the discussion on privacy has to do with uh, legislation, with the politics of of changing technologies, and it seems very much in the news from people who say it's totally gone to saying it's a value we must do all we can to preserve. So it's both political and legal and um, and has enormous ethical implications. And who do we want to read it? Anyone who would like to. It's aimed, this is a series from Oxford University Press, uh, What Everyone Needs to Know, about a variety of popular topics, including whole countries to sports ethics, so all kinds of things. And it's pitched at an intelligent, interested, not always academic audience, although uh, I think they hope that occasionally a, a, a university class might adopt it. They're really aiming this series at a broad, intellectually interested audience. Yes, and I thought that you know the way that the book was structured in terms of questions and answers focused on very concrete issues really advance that agenda. Uh, I particularly was just thinking about the uh, part of the health privacy chapter where you talk about uh, recordings that might be done either by patients of their healthcare providers or by healthcare providers of the hospital setting if they're worried about violence or non-compliance or things like that. And I think it really did a good job in terms of sp- 
spotlighting just how many issues could be raised by the very simple act of bringing in a smartphone and starting to record. Yes, it was fascinating to try to write in that style because the first thing you had to do was think about what questions do you think are important or will others think are important? And then you had to try to figure out how in a very succinct way and a very readable way and a non-repetitive way, you could answer those questions. So we had a great time when we were working on this together, brainstorming questions and sending our answers back and forth. Uh, that was part of what made the having this be a joint project be a whole lot of fun. So if you read uh, Nate Silver this morning in 538, they make the point that there's 1.3 trillion pictures taken on various iPhones and, and other and Android phones. And so in effect, we know that the capacity of the police and how they encounter people that they may take a, how they treat during an arrest is highly likely now to be recorded. So conceptions of multiple images and lots of shared information characterize the era. What is the foundation for your idea of privacy, your concept of privacy? Um, in the book, I think you reject an information or data ownership model, but there was a point where you said, I think you find, quote, moral insights captured in the possessory language can be useful. Um, do you tend to go back to an autonomy rationale for privacy? Just trying to get a sense of, of where you position yourselves on that issue, if you think it's important. Well, I'll, I'll begin. I think it would be misleading and probably not useful to say that there's one overriding definition of privacy, but the one, the kind of set of definitions that were appealing to us in part had to do with the sense of having the space or the time to work on your own preferences and your own uh, goals, um, whether that just be in passing through the day or retreating to the wilderness or something, some period of where you felt in control of your situation. It's a modest claim, but it seems to be one that's recurring in many discussions of privacy. Part of what we tried to do also is to trace out how there really are very different ideas of privacy that people have from that kind of space to the choices that to control over the choices that you might make to control over information and they're related but they're not the same and so uh, a law about information might or might not be a law about choices uh, an ethical consideration that supports control over information might or might not be um, a an argument that supports not giving um, access to the information. So there are a lot of different strains of argument. And rather than singling out one as the most important, a lot of what we tried to do in the book was delineate the many different ways people could think about this so that our readers could see which one resonates with them. Uh, there's too much sort of one-sided privacy's got to be this out there in the literature. And we wanted to give people a sense of the very complex issues that are actually involved. Yes, I really appreciated that. And I thought this was such a unique book in terms of how it presented the issues. I was actually reading it as I was also reading um, uh, Krotichinsky's book, uh, Privacy Revisited. And I think both of the books really highlight how different conceptions of privacy can be around the world. 
And one really concrete example I would give is uh, you mentioned in the health privacy chapter, uh, Prince Rainier, and there was this conflict over photos of him. And apparently the European Court of right, Human Rights ruled that an image showing him sort of walking in a disabled or a way that suggested illness was in the public interest, but the images of his family's vacation were not in the public interest. And I think that, you know, on the one hand, an observation like that could fuel a lot of the anti-privacy, pro-free expression crowd in the U.S. to say, oh, throw up your hands, it's impossible for government to regulate the dissemination of information. But others would look at this and say, oh, well, it just shows the diversity of cultural values and how they get translated into uh, legal commitments. That's right. And it also suggests a kind of moral argument here because the public has a real interest in knowing whether, even if it's just a ceremonial leader, um, knowing the leader's health. But does the public have an interest in sort of the, whatever the little details are of how um, the family plays together? Very different uh, possibility. Although, I mean, an example is that Prince Rainier, that if the monarch of uh, disappears in that particular principality, the country reverts to France. So knowing the health and even knowing the family heirs becomes everything. So that should be a matter of public record in a way that maybe knowing the health of the Queen of uh, the United Kingdom, who cares because there's a successor and there's no real power. So context matters in understanding privacy. Recall also during Steve Jobs's illnesses, when he was Apple CEO uh, uh, prior to his, his tragic early demise, there were lots of questions about how secret his or how private his health information should be given his position at the helm of such an important company. And the very real economic impact potentially of that. So you, of course, dredge up. I, I, that's so bad, isn't it? But I hate that. I hate this article. You dredge up Warren and Brandeis, yes. right? which I think is a massively overstated uh, or overvalued piece of legal literature. Uh, and that sort of core idea of the right to be left alone. Um, and that seems to lead you into talking about boundary negotiation, um, which is really interesting territory that um, friends call Colleagues of mine who do sociology have explored and so on. Um, is is technology fast making it almost impossible for us to engage in meaningful boundary negotiation? So, I mean, in a sense, uh, the article that you don't like is based on the question of technological change. <laughs> That's so the, true. The transfer, the transmission of images of photographs from one part of the country to the other, which was emerging with modern uh, newspapers and the portrayal of images that people would later object to. So I think in many respects, in from the kind of very wild times of newspaper reporting up through maybe the 70s, anything kind of went. And then I think it changed a bit so that you ended up with blurry shots and you have rules such as in Paris that you cannot take pictures of people in the streets of Paris without their permission. I recognize that doesn't happen all that often. But nonetheless, I think every time there's a technological advance, you're now seeing levels of discussion and some response that you wouldn't have seen in the past with the use of other technologies gave you enormous latitude to be in 
So one of the ways to view it is that the technology has changed what you have to look for and what you have to do. And it's given different kinds of ways that intrusion could take place. But it hasn't actually changed the fact that people sometimes care about intrusions and want to protect themselves from them. Uh, it may have changed even what people conceive of as intrusions intrusions. But the fact that people might want a bit of space or time or moments of not being seen. Uh, we use the image at one point of um, the panopticon, which is a, you know, a, an all-seeing, always eye or um, Big Brother uh, watching you. Big Brother has different ways of watching, but that doesn't mean we don't care about at least sometimes not being watched. Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, it raised a question in my mind when I was thinking about the relationship between the chapters that you have on law enforcement, uh, surveillance, the anti-terrorism apparatus, and health privacy. Because I know that a lot of the times when we teach health privacy, we are very careful to note law enforcement exceptions and to make sure that that the students are uh, aware of those. And yet, on the other hand, we also want to try to set forth some sort of limits on the ability of the surveillance state to get its hands on all information. But then on the other hand, as you note in the health privacy chapter, there's a real need for public health surveillance. And one thing I was wondering, you know, about the connecting your book to current debates in privacy is it seems like there's a big shift among a lot of activists from a consent-based model to a more use-based model from saying, well, it seems as though everybody seems to be giving up their data and it's so hard to control uh, data flows, but at least we could try to restrict use. And I'm wondering if you have a sense if that is a theme that could help reconcile these conflicts of values that come up between, say, an individual wanting to know that their health data is not being abused, but simultaneously feeling some duty to contribute to an overall medical research law enforcement enterprise. And public health. Don't forget get public health. Yes, yes. Because, uh, you know, one of the things we think is very important is that if people just hide data and epidemics go unidentified, or if uh, important kinds of health information isn't available in ways that could be life-saving, that's, I, I was going to use the word tragedy. I mean, that's at least deeply unfortunate. Uh, in some of our other writing uh, together, we've emphasized the importance of thinking about issues of justice in data use. And that's, we absolutely agree that shifting it from either a property rights model or a consent model is important. Now, you raised at the beginning of this conversation, um, what did we think was the inside of my data? Well, I don't think it's that I own the data, but the data did come from me. And so maybe we as a society need to think about what are appropriate uses of data that come from people and turning that around, what should people expect back in terms of protections, benefits, not simply being used? So that's the use point, not the consent point. Yeah, I think that one of the things that stands out is that particularly cooperation in public health. So every year for the last 20 years, there's been a significant increase in the number of 
possible epidemics. And that means even more weight is being put on cooperation. And I think one of the other threads that wanders through here is that people are more inclined to cooperate if they don't expect that they're going to suffer harm from the release of information about themselves. And I think that was one of the reasons that it has been so difficult in the early decades of HIV-AIDS when sharing information seemed to put you in harm's way from people around you. So finding strategies that means if you're going to have some disclosure that reduces your privacy, at least you're not also experiencing a level of harm or possible loss of employment or many other things that often flow from the fear that people have from epidemics or other public health-related activities. We should also emphasize for your listeners that part of what we thought was fun about this book is its privacy in lots of different domains, not not just health, but health and education and employment and financial matters and, of course, relations to um, the police, and but housing, um, all kinds of ways. And one of the things that we thought was important is for people to understand that maybe privacy shouldn't be just siloed about a particular kind of information, but that a lot of what matters is seeing the whole, how the whole picture mounts up in context. So if sharing health information means that you can't get an education, as at one point it did with HIV uh, in the early days of fear, kids couldn't go to school if they were HIV positive. Uh, if sharing health information means that you can't get a job, or if it negatively affects your credit history so you can't rent an apartment, it can be devastating. I've uh, argued that there are historical, professional, and moral reasons for what I call health data protection exceptionalism, that we should give the very highest level of protection to health information. Do you buy into that, or do you think it is a matter of context, uh, whatever the kind of information is we're talking about? I don't actually buy into it. I think a lot of it is context. And I think some some health information is indeed quite sensitive, and some is not. Uh, for example, uh, there are kinds of health information that might link very closely to important aspects of identity. Uh, other aspects of health information, do I have a cold? for example, don't relate to important aspects of identity. So it isn't it isn't all health or not health. It's what type of health information related to what, and then how is it going to be used rather than health or not, or even some type of health information. For example, genetic information has also been exceptionalized uh, in some respects very problematically. Yes, this question of sort of the overall relative value of privacy in different sectors is a really interesting one. And I think that, you know, another service of the book is to sort of introduce readers to a more global perspective on how you might conceptualize the problem. For example, the way that Europeans might, the GDPR might, um, other cultural approaches. Um, I'm also wondering about the question of security. Do you think it's important for folks that are thinking about privacy to have a sense of security or to, uh, or to grasp that concept as being distinct from privacy? Or do you think it sort of is ideally introduced is within the context of privacy, either in a, a trust-based account of the relations between those who have information and those the information is about, or a fiduciary responsibility or something like that? Again, uh, there are a variety of meanings of security. So there's data security, whether your data are being
being um, corrupted, um, stolen. And then there's physical security, personal security, uh, whether you're, if you're identified as a leper being thrown off the cliffs at Molokai, or if you're identified as HIV positive being stoned to death, as people have been. Personal security, physical security, data security, and all of those can, in complicated ways, be related to privacy. Data theft puts my data at risk. A breach of confidentiality could put my physical security at risk, and so on. Frank uh, mentioned the the GDPR, and in an earlier question, had sort of nudged you from consent to use restrictions. Starting perhaps this time with John, given that you do comparative politics, I wonder how you look at the European idea of um, the right to be forgotten and how you reflect on that in it, in, in, in its cultural and political contexts as, as well as how we think about it in terms of its legal implications. Yeah, I think it's actually, it's a fascinating contrast between Europe and the United States. So my rough sense of the of the right to be forgotten, it's a slightly complicated way in which it is regulated in, in the EU. My sense of it now, after a couple of years and hundreds of thousands of people opting to use it, is that the people who seem to use it the most are well-educated people and people who would rather have more control over selectively over the information that's made available about them. Um, I have a, an old friend that I will disguise the country, but a person of some prominence who in the past, much was known about this person, and now nothing is known about this person. So it's amazing what you can now eliminate. And so I tend to fall more in this in this regard in the in the American context of the right to know. And obviously, you don't want people that uh, that prompted the right to be forgotten, where false information was there or information that harmed their occupation. But on the other hand, I'd hate to see a system where the well-off and the well-educated were able to effectively isolate themselves um, from search engines, which I don't think is very helpful either. It's interesting, you know, in terms of the right to be forgotten and um, its implementation. I do think that there is sort of a fundamental problem in terms of it being primarily implemented on the front lines by Google. You know, I mean, that's essentially the, the, the yeah. target of most of the complaints. And I think in that case, you know, they're, they're probably ignoring the aspects of the judgment that talked about the special duty to to retain access to information to public about public figures. But I also think that, you know, it's so interesting that the stories are so fascinating. Like I remember this one story of a woman whose husband was murdered 20 years ago. And now 20 years later, every search on her name, the first 10 results were about the husband, uh, the husband's murder. And she said, look, you know, it's true information, but it's just excessive for this to be dogging me for my entire life. And that's where I think that, you know, it's easier to analogize what's happening with RTBF uh, in Europe for an American audience to like the Fair Credit Reporting Act where, you know, after 10 years, uh, the bankruptcies cannot be on it. You know, they're told you've got to take the bankruptcy off. And there again, it's a situation where it's true information, you know, and I'm, I'm in some ways surprised that the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't gone after that. But then again, under Bartnicki versus Vopper, you know, we have a clear commitment by the court to say if something is uh, you know, a matter that's only a private concern, then it's okay for the state to uh, sort of require it to be dropped from certain uh, records and data. But yeah, 
Yes. I mean, the, the diversity of cases that arise under something like the right to be forgotten are so interesting. And this is just in the news because uh, Google just voluntarily decided that if you ask it, it will take off private medical records from uh, search results. And I think almost everybody would agree that that's a, a good outcome, that there sh- we should live in a world where uh, if your medical records get hacked, uh, then someone can search on your name plus medical records and then find them on Google. I think I don't think you actually have to ask, Frank. I think it, it's uh, they've they've flipped a switch on the algorithm and, it, and it's rooting them out. Wow. Uh, yeah. Even better news. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the news today, of course, was that Google got hit by the <laughs> antitrust authorities. Yeah, in, yeah in, that, in that's Europe. actually that's actually going to be quite a quite a, a case. So I do think, of course, you know, when people's medical records revealed, except in the case of Prince Rainier. So uh, I think the, the, the kind of question that we confront is when does someone become sufficiently well known when she or he seeks office or becomes involved with a prominent NGO locally? And there's also the additional dilemma that newspapers are, uh, are suffering a bit. And the notion of keeping um, newspapers uh, a kind of uh, record of the past is largely disappearing. So there's an interesting problem as well that in the you could always find on the right to be forgotten the argument was you could go back and find the records but paper records aren't what they used to be and so I'm a little worried about we may be entering an era when we will no longer know the past of many people for right or for wrong reasons. And actually, the original case that uh, got the right to be forgotten uh, out uh, into the world, in a way, involved an old debt. And it was a link to a public record publication of what essentially we'd call foreclosures. And right, the Spanish, the Spanish case, the Spanish case. Yes. Yeah. Now, something else, just to for readers to be aware of, a lot of the requests to break links go to newspapers. So uh, they'll go to the Guardian, or they'll go to the Times of London, or Le Monde, or whatever the newspaper is in question, to um, not have there be a way for the article that was at one point published to show up in searches. Uh, Yes, searches on a person's name, right? Right. It's it's not like it gets disappeared from all searches of all time. It's just on that person's name. Well, that's that's (laughs) one of the complicated questions about the right to be forgotten. It's uh, it is a matter of not having links turn up in response to a search query. So the question is always what search query and in what database. So uh, one of the European one of the European U.S. questions actually is whether uh, Google Spain is different from Google U.S. Whether the links yes. should be broken worldwide or only in a particular country? Yes, it raises very interesting questions of regulatory arbitrage. And I think similar to the types of issues that are raised by, say, tax havens and other things. You know, I mean, clearly, if Google wanted to, it could figure out all various forms of redirects or other ways of evading um, the right to be forgotten. And it could. You, and I think this is a really interesting sort of battle on the front lines of the future of privacy regulation, because, you know, they're, they, they constantly can come up with an argument like, well, don't break the internet, etc. And that actually reminds me of the section of your book on financial privacy. And I think that raises such interesting questions too, because one question becomes, you know, is financial privacy something that should say trump the ability of tax authorities to find out? And I, I use the word trump um, <laughs> directly here because, you know, I mean, you could you could cl- cl- classify or characterize what Donald Trump has done with his tax returns as one of the greatest triumphs of personal privacy in the past uh, century. But it also seems to me that, you know, 
know, perhaps once someone has a fortune above a, a given size, that there should be something analogous in uh, financial privacy law to, say, the public figure doctrine in other areas where, you know, their, their privacy has to cede some uh, ground to the public interest. I fully agree with you that, I mean, one of the key points in regulation of financial services is transparency and the notion of insider trading or all the other pieces of information. So if you're going, and tra- you need transparency to have confidence in a financial system. I think that's kind of the bedrock of regulation in that area. And so particularly in construction and all those areas which often are intimately connected to government decision making, I would argue that you would that anyone seeking office, particularly, or anyone with a significant fortune, should be subject to greater transparency and greater requirement to reveal their fin- their finances than people with less income or with less ambition. Just to give you a little bit of a historical sense, in the early days of the income tax, all returns were public information. And then there were worries that people wouldn't uh, be willing to submit them. Uh, Today, if you're a nonprofit and you're required to file a, um, a tax return called a 990, your income amounts and expenditure amounts are public. You can get on a finder uh, document, I mean, a finder website that you can turn up the 990s for any uh, 501c3 in the United States. On the other hand, what uh, What you don't learn when you get the 990 is who are the donors to the nonprofits. So even today, we have a very complicated set of rules about what we protect and what we don't protect. And of course, one of the big arguments about uh, some of the money that's going into politics these days is it comes from uh, various kinds of organizations that are able to conceal the names of their donors. Uh, Now, when the state of Alabama tried to get the names of the donors to the NAACP, uh, maybe we wanted to protect the names of those donors because of the potential harm to them. and But today, we have various organizations that are concealing how wealth in the United States is potentially affecting uh, politics. So which way you go on these questions is not resolved easily and raises serious questions about what kinds of harm, at what are the interests in the information, what are the interests that we're protecting at a given point in time. I'd say- certainly say that, as I recommend this book, it, it's certainly uh, one of the least dystopian uh, books about uh, privacy I've read recently, not mentioning any books that uh, my co-presenter might have written. No <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> dark algorithms here. No dark algorithms here. <laughs> but um, you mentioned, I think, Leslie, that, you know, that as te- new technologies come along, that that gives us an opportunity for discussion and so on. But let me push back a little bit on that because, yes, I remember at the time of the spread of HIV AIDS, there was a discussion about the type of privacy model we should use. As the genome was being worked on, we had the LC discussion, uh, which led to GINA. But since then, really, have we had any substantive discussions in the political space uh, in particular about the state of privacy in this country? Um, there have been many bills uh, or suggestions for legislation about data brokers, for example. President Obama even put forward a, a privacy bill 
bill, um, not that it ever made its way to uh, Congress. So are you optimistic that we are going to have meaningful conversations? I, I think those conversations have focused primarily on information and on risks of use or breach of information. I think there's a much deeper set of conversations that people need to keep thinking about and that I'm not sure there's an obvious immediate political resolution. And that is that if you think about privacy and liberal theory, one of the very deep questions has always been how much of a private sphere should be and what should it look like should be walled off from the state. So, for example, think about families. Privacy has been invoked to protect the core of the family. On the other hand, the core of the family can conceal abuse. There's a feminist critique of privacy in that way. Uh, one of the um, odd little bits in the book that I, I'm not sure that our readers would anticipate is the secret ballot. And there were arguments at the beginning of liberal theory about whether the ballot should be secret or John not. John Stuart Mill uh, was deeply opposed to it. He thought that we could trust much more, uh, that people were trying to think through very seriously about voting in the interests of the state. Um, or, you know, voting responsibly if we knew how they voted. On the other hand, of course, there, the predominant view is the deep worries that you'll lose your job or you'll be attacked or whatever if other people know how you voted. So, uh, you asked about optimism. I'm not sure the question is optimism. I think the question is much more, are we going to have ongoing, serious, thoughtful, political, uh, discussions about what and when is the appropriate scope for individual protection and control, and what's the appropriate scope for sharing, worrying about the interests of others, and overall worrying about the ways in which um, how one is seen, what becomes known about one, can either be beneficial or harmful. And that was The Week in Health Law. A really big thank you to Professors Francis and Francis, um, who, for privacy reasons, are not available on Twitter. It was great fun having you with us, and uh, you're welcome back. Uh, on the pod anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. Yes, we enjoyed it very much. And thanks again for all you do for Health Law. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week. And if you value your privacy, close those drapes. Mm-hmm.